It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, July 29th, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. There's no sign of a major breakthrough in Ukraine's counteroffensive, but that is not dampening U.S. resolve. When the president says for as long as it takes, he means for as long as it takes. This is not a, a bilateral relationship that we're going to walk away from. And get your lineup cards ready because we're just a few weeks away from the first debate night of the 2024 campaign. I think this debate is going to be one of the most important events on the Republican nomination calendar. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Ukraine claims to be retaking territory that was seized as part of Russia's invasion more than a year ago. But progress has been slow, and it's likely the Western contribution of weapons will need to continue. Just this week, the Biden administration announced a $400 million aid package of air defense munitions, anti-aircraft stinger missiles, rockets and unmanned drones. It was the 43rd drawdown of Pentagon inventories and the U.S. commitment to Ukraine's military now talks. $43 billion. Meantime, military officials are still trying to learn more about the fate of Army Private Travis King, a 23-year-old soldier stationed in South Korea who, during an escort to a flight back to the U.S., managed to board a tour bus and then willingly enter North Korea back on July 18th. White House National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications John Kirby has been the administration's point person for both issues and sat down with me this week for a deeper conversation on diplomatic efforts to bring King home in the state of the war in Ukraine. We rather prefer to have the Ukrainians characterize what they're doing on the battlefield and not have it come from from us. That wouldn't be appropriate. It's it's their operation. Uh, but I, I would just tell you broadly uh, that there continues to be fighting all along that front. Uh, all the way from Bakhmut, all uh, uh, in, a, in an arc that arcs down towards the uh, the southwest, uh, down towards uh, Zaporizhia, uh, and they are actively engaged in fighting with Russian forces that are on the defense. Uh, they're actively trying to penetrate through minefields to get to these Russian lines of defense that they've had months and months to dig in. So um, there, it is a very dynamic environment. You know, I, I've heard people speculate that you know it's 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 frozen or it's a stalemate uh, that neither side's moving and that's just not the case first of all the russians are on the defense so literally they aren't really moving forces but the but the ukrainians are moving uh, they are they, they are attacking they are advancing now they'd be the first to tell you that it's not as far or as fast as they would like but they are moving it is a very dynamic battlefront so let me ask it this way, I guess, because the U.S. is certainly providing an awful lot of support, uh, more uh, aid announced by the president this week with the, the latest drawdown. And it still enjoys an awful lot of bipartisan support. But are there concerns about the sustainability if this is a conflict that really does get bogged down and, and becomes almost a war of attrition for a prolonged period of time? The president has said we're going to support Ukraine for as long as it takes, and he means that. And it's not just President Biden saying that. It's, it's, our, it's our allies and partners. And you saw that 
uh, clearly on display at the Vilnius uh, NATO summit uh, just a couple of weeks ago. There's an awful lot of international support for continuing to help Ukraine in the long haul. Now, look, what's the long haul look like? Uh, you asked a, a hypothetical question, which I couldn't answer. You know, uh, you said, you know, if it gets bogged down, we, we don't know where that's going to go. Right now, it's not bogged down. And so we're, we're, we're looking at this in sort of if you, if you want to think about it in, in sort of three chunks, the first is the immediate needs. What's what's right in front of them? And that's why you keep seeing us provide security packages of mine clearing equipment and drones and more artillery rounds to help them break through Russian defenses. That's the fight in front of them. And they are taking the fight to the to the Russians. The the second tranche here is, is sort of uh, what are post-war long-term uh, security commitments that Ukraine's going to need because in between the time this war is over, and we don't know when that's going to be, and they eventually become NATO members, they're still going to have a long border with Russia that they're going to need to protect. And so you also uh, can see uh, a lot of solidarity in the NATO alliance, and particularly from the G7 uh, nations, to make sure that we are working bilateral arrangements with Ukraine uh, for longer-term security defense needs. And then the third tranche, the really long-term, would be sort of a, a, a post-NATO membership accession. And what does that look like for uh, Ukraine? And the other thing coming out of the NATO summit was was a, a, a promise that we would help develop a path towards NATO membership for Ukraine at a time when it's appropriate. So all that is to say that when the president says for as long as it takes, he means for as long as it takes. This is not a, a bilateral relationship that we're going to walk away from. Right now, the focus is self-defense, Longer term, it's going to be security commitments. And then after that, you know, potential NATO membership. And, and I know they've applied for being members of the EU, but the relationship will hopefully over the long term uh, uh, evolve away from just security stuff and more towards the kinds of normal bilateral relations we have with countries around the world where it's it's economic, it's diplomatic, it's political, it's social, it's people to people. I mean, eventually, uh, that's what we all hope to get to when, when this war finally ends. We talked a little bit this week at the briefings about the F-16 program and how that's starting to, you know, get planned out, where it's going to happen, how pilots are going to be trained on those platforms. And I know that takes an awful lot of time, but can you talk about what that means from sort of like, is that a game changer for, for Ukraine to have that, that, that F-16 capability? How big a deal will that be when those planes are in the air? Well, these are, these are terrific aircraft and uh, very, very capable at multi-missions, air-to-air, air-to-ground. Uh, they're terrific airplanes. Um, and they're going to take some time to learn. I mean, they're, 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 even though they're old for our inventory, they're still fairly advanced platforms, and it's going to take a little while for the Ukrainian pilots to learn how to, how to fly them. Um, and it'll take a while before the aircraft actually get to Ukraine and, and get used uh, in, in terms of uh, operations. So not going to be an immediate fa factor in terms of the counteroffensive. Uh, but back to what I was talking to you before about in terms of long-term uh, security uh, commitments and long-term self-defense capabilities for Ukraine, they certainly will be uh, a powerful addition to the Ukrainian Air Force and to Ukrainian military capabilities. The focus right now is making sure we get the training set up. So there's a few things moving. Denmark and uh, and Romania have agreed to uh, to host uh, the initial tranche of 
pilots from Ukraine to learn how to fly the F-16. Uh, those countries are, are working those plans right now. I don't have a lot of detail for you in terms of when it's going to start or how long the curriculum is going to be, but we're working closely with them to see if we can get this going as soon as possible, certainly in the near future. Uh, the British are also already beginning to uh, train Ukrainian pilots uh, on the English language because in order to be able to fly the F-16, you yeah, the, the, all the controls and the uh, and the computer system is in English, so we got to make sure that they they understand the language that is beginning, uh, uh, if not already begun by by the Brits. So you're seeing this effort really kick off, and, uh, and obviously the the aircraft themselves will come later. And, and we're still working again with allies and partners on what that looks like, as as you saw in Hiroshima. What we established was a basically a consortium uh, of allies and partners who possess the F-16 who might be willing to uh, provide some of their fleet inventory to Ukraine. And again, we're still working out what that's going to look like. These are great aircraft. They will no doubt make a, a difference in the Ukrainian Air Force, uh, but it's going to be uh, uh, quite some time before they're actually uh, f- flying with the Ukrainian flag on them. Let me follow up on, on one thing uh, on this Ukraine uh, conversation, because one of the the and you sort of mentioned it, too, about inventories, right, with F-16s. What's the inventory looking like for the other munitions uh, that are being contributed by the U.S. and allies to Ukraine? Are, are there concerns about keeping the, the flow moving as quickly as you guys want to keep it moving? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because it is moving at unprecedented speed still. Uh, and we've been we have, we were able to get everything that Ukraine asked for for their counteroffensives to them. And we continue to do that, as I mentioned earlier in our interview, that, you know, that just a recent package. Um, inventory has been since the beginning of this war, something that the Department of Defense uh, has got to continue to balance. It's absolutely vital that as we provide assistance to Ukraine, that we don't uh, put our own national security in jeopardy. And with every single package that's approved, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, General Milley uh, signs off on it in, in terms of making sure that it's it, it uh, that we, we still maintain our own readiness to defend our own national security uh, around the world, and that continues to be the case. But you know, a good example of inventory concerns um, is artillery ammunition. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the chief factors that led to the president's decision to provide cluster munitions. These are artillery shells mm-hmm. that have mini bomblets in them um, and they're used for area uh, concentration you can you can uh, unlike a normal artillery shell uh, the explosive effect because there are bomblets inside the shell uh, can be much wider geographically uh, but one of the chief factors for that decision was to provide a bridging solution because we knew the Ukrainians were running low on conventional 155 millimeter artillery shells uh, and our inventory our production rate of 155 shells to to help supplement their needs was also not where we want it to be. Now, we're not hurting our national security with artillery. I want to make that clear. We've got artillery shells to defend ourselves and to to defend our, our security interests around the world. But our production rate to replace those that are being expended in the war was is still not where we want it to be. So the cluster munitions were approved as a bridging solution while we get that production uh, capability ramped up, uh, which we will over coming months. Because um, that's a good example of, of inventory actually playing a role here, but, but having 
creative solutions uh, to make sure that we can continue to support Ukraine while we are at the same time working closely with the defense industry to, to make sure our production levels here at home stay where they need to be. Let me change to another topic, uh, North Korea. What can you tell us about the latest that we know about Private Travis King, uh, the, the Army uh, private who, I guess, on his own went into North Korea? I wish, I really wish uh, that I could give you some specificity uh, on him. The, the truth is we don't have any more information today uh, than we did last week. Uh, uh, we, uh, we continue to, to, uh, to try to ascertain and get information from, uh, from Pyongyang. And we have other, we have multiple channels to do that. We continue to try to get and glean information about his well-being, his whereabouts, uh, and to make it clear that, uh, that we want to get him, uh, home. We want to get him to the United States, we want to get him back to his family. Uh, but, uh, but sadly, I, I don't have an update for you. Uh, we're, uh, we're working this as hard as we can, uh, but, uh, but nothing, nothing to update. Is there an assessment on why North Korea hasn't said anything about this case? No, uh, there, there's no, uh, there's no real visibility here into, into why they haven't said anything, why they, uh, haven't been uh, more responsive uh, to our uh, request for information, uh, but we're just going to have to keep at it. We're just going to have to keep trying. He's an American soldier, mm. uh, and North Korea is not a good place for any American to be, and uh, we're worried about that. We're concerned about his uh, his uh, safety and his well-being, and so we're just going to have to keep going at it. I know this doesn't change the efforts that are underway, but sort of from because we talk a lot about sort of designations, right, when Americans are, are abroad and, and being held. Is there sort of a, a decision on, on how Private King is designated? Is he considered to be unlawfully detained or, or how, how does that work as you try and work the process here? Well, that's really up to the State Department. I, uh, so I, I would not be okay. uh, in a position to, to comment on uh, what his status is. But we look, and I don't want to make a legal determination here, yeah. um, but, but clearly this is a brutal regime. And we have to reconcile with the possibility that he's not being held, uh, potentially not being held in a humane or, or, or safe environment. That, uh, and, and so I, we're concerned about that. This is not a nation that's, that's known for uh, detaining people uh, you know, in a safe, secure, and humane environment. So um, I'm not saying that we know that for a fact. Mm -hmm. The truth is we don't know. Uh, but it's the fact that we don't know that makes us so deeply concerned about it. Let me finish uh, with another issue that you've been asked about a, a couple of times, but I, I wanted to ask a couple of follow-ups with this big hearing that was on the Hill this week with UFOs or UAPs, whatever we're, we're calling them, right? Um, because one of these whistleblowers um, basically said that the government is in possession of otherworldly technologies and non-human biologics from these otherworldly or or non-human technologies. Um, what did you make of that testimony? I mean, is the U.S. Um, reverse engineering uh, UFO technology? Uh, look, I, I, I my understanding here, and what and what the office at the Pentagon, the all domain. Anomaly Resolution Office um, has said publicly uh, is that they have not discovered any verifiable information 
to substantiate claims of uh, of extraterrestrials. I'm certainly not aware of any reverse engineering efforts. Um, I think we need some. I think we need to keep this in perspective. There, the, there are unidentified aerial phenomenon out there. They are having, uh, as re- pilots report these things, they are having potential impacts on their ability, these pilots' ability to train and operate in these training ranges where they've been seen. Um, and so we're taking this seriously. In fact, that's why that office was stood up over at the Pentagon. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's going to help us coordinate efforts to detect and identify and to try to attribute what these things are. Um, and that's really what the focus is. Um, but again, there's- I, I, mean, I'm, so, I mean, I'm glad you, you said it that way, because there obviously is a congressional interest in this. And, and it sounds like what you're saying is that that focus needs to be on that national security side of it. Right. Trying to explain what this is, because there have been sightings that's around right. U.S. military installations and things of that nature. Absolutely. That's exactly the, the point. I mean, uh, that's why we have to take this seriously. Uh, but we, we have a lot more questions right now than we have answers. Um, and that's, again, why the Pentagon stood this office up. What ultimately is the I mean, do you expect as the Pentagon tries to find these answers, sort of a, a public disclosure on, on some of this information? I, I think you can expect that that the uh, that the Pentagon and the, 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 the government will be as, as transparent as possible. Um, but again, I want to stress that there's, there's still a lot we just don't know right now. I mean, that, that's, again, why this office was stood up, to, to see if we can get smarter, so see if we can analyze the data better. Um, but uh, but I, I, of course, we'll, we'll, we'll try to be as transparent as, as, as possible as on this, as on uh, lots of other national security issues. Admiral Kirby, appreciate the time as always. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Nearly every Republican running for president spoke to Iowans Friday night. But those events, political cattle calls giving candidates several minutes to make their case solo, are nothing like the unpredictability and even combative nature of a crowded debate stage. And we are now less than a month away from the first one, set for August 23rd in Milwaukee, several months before Republican delegates will officially name their nominee. Fox's Brett Baer and Martha McCallum will moderate. Radio coverage will be provided by our team here. How many podiums that will be needed is still unknown. The Republican National Committee says to be invited, candidates will need to hit polling thresholds and donors thresholds. So far, several have done so, but a couple big names are still at risk of falling short. I think we know who's going to be there. In, in, uh, we know with one except, one possible exception. Arnon Mishkin is the director of the Fox News Decision Desk. And that exception won't be for lack of polling or donor enthusiasm. Former President Trump has indicated he's so far in the lead, why should he even bother? And that could be unwelcome news for the several others looking to take direct shots at the front runner. I don't know if Trump's going to be there. That's clearly um, he knows how to attract attention. And he's that's not be a attra- qualification yeah. issue. He is qualified for the debate. Yeah, he's yeah, definitely going to. Yeah, yeah. DeSantis is definitely going to be there. 
Christie seems to have qualified. Vivek has, has, has qualified. Nikki Haley, I believe, has qualified. Tim Scott has qualified. And um, who am I missing? Um, there's one person who hasn't yet qu- qualified, and that's going to be the big mystery, which is Mike Pence. Yeah. Um, well, you know, with and- Pence, it's interesting because he is qualified, I think, from the polling perspective, right? He has 1% of most of these polls. But the the RNC has sort of added this secondary criteria that you have to have, what, 40,000 unique donors and they can't all come from, from one place. Is he struggling to get donors? It does appear as though he's struggling. And, and, and you know this because in every interview he does, he always says, I'm going to be on the, uh, on the, on the stage uh, and please give money. <laughs> <laughs> so you, and he puts it, what's at his website. So you know he's having a little bit of trouble getting to that 40,000 number. Um, distributed it as 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 such, and that's going to be a mystery. And and you know it could it could work in his favor if he manages to make it. It's like he did it, and he's he he gets the Rocky uh, a little bit of Rocky Rocky type attention from the movie. Um, and uh, if he doesn't, I think it's really difficult news for for um, Mike Pence. You know the thing about Mike Pence is he is a really good debater. Um, mm-hmm. He I'm, yeah. I'm sorry I credit much of the 2016 victory by Donald Trump to his performance in that debate against Tim Kaine. He did a great job and he had just come off a a performance where Trump had not done that well in the first debate with Hillary Clinton. So he's a really good debater. I thought he did really well against Kamala Harris in the um, 2020 election. Mm -hmm. So he could, you know, if he gets to the stage, he could cause some damage, but he got to get to the stage. I mean, how big a red flag is that, that somebody like Mike Pence, a a former vice president and not just and and a, a pretty uh, i mean vice he had a pretty big portfolio as far as vice presidents go i mean some vice presidents kind of you know are in obscurity and, and others take a more you know forward leaning role he obviously took a pretty public role particularly uh, on january 6th but uh, for somebody with his profile to not get 40,000 unique donors that's a red flag isn't it oh absolutely i mean no the the Here's the thing about Mike Pence. On the issues, he is ideal for the Republican Party. And more than just ideal for the Republican Party, he is perfect for Iowa, for the Iowa caucuses, because Mm -hmm. he is a strong evangelical Christian. Um, He has built his career around that. Um, The Iowa caucuses have a very solid group of evangelical participants. They've always been key to that state, to victory in that state. He is, you think, ideally uh, the perfect uh, person for there. But on the other hand, there are a lot of Republican voters, particularly the most you know, likely to attend caucuses, the most likely to participate in primaries, who are still angry at Mike Pence over the fact that he refused or he, he, he said he had no right to do anything other than count the electoral votes on January 6th. There are still well, people who are angry at him for that. And by the way, almost a, every constitutional scholar has agreed with that assessment. But you're, you're well, that's right. right. I mean, it's been so. I mean, you know, he gets, I, I think, a lot of credit from, you know, some Democrats who have sort of held him up. Now, I think if he were the nominee, Democrats would probably fall out of love with Mike Pence pretty quickly. But um, <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> I, let me let me ask about some of these um, temps that, that guys are using. Doug Burgum, the governor of North Dakota, um, giving away $20 gift cards for a $1 donation to get to that 40,000 threshold. I think um, 
Francis Suarez in, in Miami, the, the mayor there, has done something similar. He was giving away, I think, tickets to that Messi game down there, the Inter-Miami uh, game, um, to, to get donations. I guess that's allowed. That's fine. But what does that tell you about a candidate's viability? Not much. I mean, in the case of, I mean, it tells you something about this 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 restriction that you have to have a certain number of donors yeah. to, to get there. It, it tells you something about how you can play the game. Uh, you know, Doug Burgum, in many respects, could, I mean, we don't know. He has the per- persona. He's a, was a very successful businessman. He was a, a, quite a successful governor of a very successful state, in part thanks to the um, uh, the oil in, um, mm-hmm. and the shale. Energy, in the energy North boom Dakota. out there, yeah. Uh, and so you could see him being a sort of a tabula rasa sort of candidate of the, of the party then doing well. Who knows? I mean, I think the most interesting thing about that debate um, is going to be what the what happens to uh, to Ron DeSantis in that debate. And the interesting thing is, is um, if you know the way the, the the race is shaping up right now, Donald Trump is clearly the front runner. And sure. every Trump voter's second choice is Ron DeSantis. And every Ron DeSantis's voter second choice is a mixture. So what that Mm. means is that Mm. the other candidates, they need to get DeSantis out of the way if they're to have any chance as being the alternative to Donald Trump. And so in a funny kind of way, if Donald Trump is not there in Milwaukee, all guns are going to be pointed at Ron DeSantis, with the possible exception of Chris Christie, who's just going to do his thing. Uh, <laughs> Chris Christie. But everyone else is going to figure Chris, out. Chris Christie's gun is, is attuned solely to, to Donald Trump. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask about, because you bring up a good point. So I, I'm always fascinated in these early debates about kind of the stakes, right? I don't think it's make or break for the guys at the very top. I guess if they have a miserable night, maybe it is. But, you know, usually for the candidates at the very top, these aren't make or break moments. Could this be a make or break moment if you're somebody who like just sort of barely got in? Or if, let's say, you're you're Mike Pence and need to kind of reassert, maybe reintroduce yourself to, to a lot of voters? Who Who has the most to gain? Who has the most to lose, I guess, is what I'm trying to ask. I think you're absolutely right. I think this debate is going to be one of the most important events on the Republican uh, uh, nomination calendar um, in the coming months. It's going to be a lot more important than who's at three points and who's at four points. Yeah. Because we're, we're going to find out in that debate who really is able to sort of get their message across, appear to be a potential president, and who basically is sort of a gadfly and really has no business being there. And I think that the the, the race could it could change very dramatically as a result of whatever is going to happen on uh, at that debate. Uh, and, you know, you have a lot of people who are sharpening their knives on Ron DeSantis. Um, Tim Scott has, has, has taken a few uh, cracks at him as well. Um, you have a lot of questions about Ron DeSantis and whether or not how well he performs in a unscripted uh, situation. And there's nothing more unscripted than a debate. Um, and so and you have a lot of questions about whether or not Mike Pence is even going to be there. Uh, and and so I think that the definition of the, the election is going to the, the nomination race is going to change um, as a result of Milwaukee. All right. So we got to talk about the front runner here, uh, Donald Trump. 
We don't know precisely um, what kind of legal situation he may be, and I don't think that's going to be a calculation in his decision whether or not to attend. Um, so what do you think is going to go into that decision for Donald Trump? That's a really, you know, the one time, the last time Donald Trump skipped the debate, it was a few days before the Iowa caucuses in 2016. Yeah. And he skipped the debate. And guess what? He wound up losing the Iowa caucuses to Ted Cruz. Uh, yes. So th that's a thing that, you know, you you, you got to have guts to, to show up. Um, the other question, I, I think that's and I think that's going to be pressure on him. Uh, I think he knows that a lot of people are going to be on that stage who are going to attack him, particularly Chris Christie. I don't know if he necessarily wants – on the one hand, I'm not sure he wants to be on that stage listening as as Chris Christie um, launches his various uh, cruise missiles at Donald Trump and on, on all, all the attacks um, sounding you know like a, basically the, the, the biggest anti-Trumper ever. And he's willing to say stuff that I'll, most Republicans are not willing to say about the legal challenges and about other stuff that, that Donald Trump has faced over the years. So I'm not sure he wants to be on the stage. On the other hand, does he want to appear as though he's chicken? <laughs> to appear uh, to, you know, not be next to but, Chris Christie. You know, the other side of that is, is that Trump and his campaign have been like, we're way up, like we're up 30 points. Why would we, why would we, uh, you know, pretend that, that we're all on, on even ground here? A really good point. And I, I, I'm, I mean, if I'm a betting person, I would bet he's not going to, uh, he's going to figure out a way not to be on that stage. Mm. I think there's talk that he's going to do some other event that might get a lot of publicity as well. Well, that, that's what he did in uh, Iowa uh, that you yeah. talked about in, in 2016. He he held a fundraiser or something, I think, right? Yeah, he did. He did, he did a fundraiser for veterans. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, you know, what he'd love is to go on um, to get some television time somewhere and basically wind up, you know, getting more ratings than than the, the Republicans. <laughs> the Republican debate. I don't know if that's possible, um, but I bet you if he if he could, was could be guaranteed that he'd do it. Um, but I'm not sure he can do that. So he's going to keep us all guessing because that's what he does. And sure. the reality is that Donald Trump of 2023 is different from the Donald Trump of 2016. And on the one hand, you know, in 2016, you couldn't take your eyes off him. Uh, I think there's still some of that, and but he's also a much more no, newsworthy figure now than he was, and sort of the former president and the former president who's currently under indictment. Um, so there is a he might figure out a way to do something really big. Um, I'm sure that that's what he's thinking about right now a lot. Well, and that's going to be the challenge, I guess, for the other candidates too. Is how do you prepare for a debate, not necessarily knowing who's going to be there and who's not. Obviously, they'll be asked questions on policy and and politics, and you answer those questions. But you're right. Other than Chris Christie, uh, we have not had a situation present itself where other candidates really had the opportunity to to kind of go after Trump in a way that. Um, yeah, I think there has been some hesitancy to do. So it will be interesting to see how that dynamic uh, plays out. We'll have a, a few more opportunities, I think, to, to talk about this as uh, the debate gets closer. But boy, it feels good to to be talking about our first debate in, in this next cycle, doesn't it, Arnon? It does. It's very exciting. And I'm looking forward to the debate. And I'm looking forward to this campaign. 
Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington, Congress is looking at the living conditions for migrant children illegally crossing the border. Jessica Rosenthal gets answers from the chairman of the House panel leading the investigation. And is the U.S. government hiding evidence of alien interactions? It was an out-of-this-world hearing on Capitol Hill. Ryan Schmelz and Chad Pergram will review. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jared Halpern. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.